Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Movie Brats podcast. I'm Carter, and joining me today, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing wonderful because I was in New York for the weekend, and I saw 11 films in less than 60 hours, so I got my fix of movies. And that'll be the main uh, portion of the discussion today. Is just uh, the stuff Jonathan saw over the weekend because he really went crazy, a little bit overboard, if you ask somebody. <laughs> so let's well, let's start with the first one you saw when you got there. Okay, well, let me preface by saying that I live in South Carolina now. I'm teaching two college film classes, but I lived for almost three years in New York City and Manhattan uh, while I was going to NYU for two of the years, and that's where I met Carter. And the I've been going to the New York Film Festival since I've been living there, and I decided to just buy a plane ticket and fly up to uh, New York City to go to the opening weekend of the festival. I volunteered there last year. I saw some films for free, but uh, I saw eight films at the festival, and I saw three in regular theaters, so I thought I would start with the three that I saw that are out in limited release uh, throughout the country. Uh, the first one I saw was The Old Man and the Gun. It's uh, written and directed by David Lowry, who's done films such as Ain't Them Body Saints and A Ghost Story. Ghost Has Story a really... is a very strange movie. Yeah, I, I really liked that film. It was um, Casey it Affleck great... just wearing like a bed sheet for the whole movie. I know it's it's um, it has a kind of Malick quality to it. And Mm -hmm. also, I think that it's uh, what's one of those films that gets great critical acclaim, but I don't think anybody saw it in theaters hardly. And (laughs) but um, his new film also has Casey Affleck. It has a really impressive cast. It has four Oscar winners, Robert Redford, Sissy Spacek. Casey Affleck and Keith Carradine, Oscar nominee Tom Waits, as well as Danny Glover and Elizabeth Moss. It's based on a true story about an elderly bank robber who would charm people when he was robbing the banks and when they were questioned by the police, the tellers, and the bank managers, they would just say stuff like, well, you know, he was really kind of charming. You know, he seemed really happy. And the film is just utterly charming and wonderful. And even though it's about a criminal, it's just so life-affirming and it's about what you're doing with your life and even if it's something that people look down on like robbing banks there's just this real wonderful free spirit to the film it's beautifully shot it really feels like it came out in the 70s and the cast is just universally uh terrific i mean robert redford has never been more you know just alive and beautiful and um, you know true movie star on screen i liked him a few years ago in a film all is lost but Mm -hmm. this is one of his uh best later career performances um and yeah it's been pretty few and far between honestly he hadn't really been very consistent like lions for lambs was supposed to be a big movie for him and i thought that was just awful well, he's been directing more in recent years, and he acts in some of them, but he, uh, I think his that, He directed film, that, didn't he? he? Did he direct Lions for Lambs? I think so. Is that the one that had Tom Cruise? Yes, as, like, the senator. Right, and yeah. is Meryl Streep in it? Meryl Streep is in it. It's got a really yeah, good never... cast, but it was just a really bad movie. You know, I actually don't know if I've ever seen a film directed by Robert Redford. I've seen about a dozen of the films he's You've acted in. You've never seen I've Ordinary seen... People? No, I know. I or need to see that. Or a river runs through it. 
No, I haven't You've never seen, seen Quiz s- Show. Oh, that's yeah, I've seen that. That's a great. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Quiz Show yeah. is amazing. I'd be shocked if you've yeah. never seen Quiz Show. But this well, was the know. one that's... that was uh, supposed to be his last movie, right? Until he quickly decided that his retirement from acting was not something he was going to actually stick with. It's like when Cher goes on a final tour and she's been doing that for, you know, what, 15 years or something. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, don't ever trust when people say they're retiring or they're not going to make any more films. And like Tarantino says he's going to make 10 films. Yeah, I never believe that. Yeah. But the film is really lovely and um, I highly uh, recommend seeing it. It's a small film, but it's worth seeing in theaters because it's beautifully shot and it's just it's just a real crowd pleaser. Um uh, the next film I saw that same day uh, was Colette. It's a biopic about the French writer, uh, arguably the most famous uh, female French writer at the turn of the century. Uh, uh, she's played by Kara Knightley, and her husband is played by Dominic West. I knew absolutely nothing about this film going into it. I didn't know about the writer. I knew some of the uh, writing that she had done, uh, for instance, she wrote the novella that Gigi is based on, but she was most known for her um, character in her uh, stories, Claudine, and that's what the most of the film is about. And the film's directed by a man named uh, Wash Westmoreland, and he and his late partner wrote the film, uh, co-wrote the film, and they did uh, Still Alice, the Julianne Moore film that she won the Oscar for. But uh, it's a very beautifully constructed period piece, kind of awards contender type yeah. movie. Seemed and, very but- Oscar baity from the trailer I saw. Yeah, but it's it, but it's really lovely, mate. Uh, you know, it's really lovely, and I, it's it's well put together. Kara Knightley is um, very good in the lead role. I mean, it's just one of those uh, period piece costume films that's just really well done. It's not, you know, it doesn't do anything new or yeah. really, uh, uh, you know, particularly uh, exciting. But it's just it's a good time at the movies. It's it's one you could take your grandmother to see if she doesn't mind <laughs> a little bit of lesbianism and in the film because there's some like uh queer content where she was kind of uh you know sleeping with her husband and when he didn't want to do that she would go uh, off with this uh woman but yeah it's it's a it's a it's a good uh very french kind of... oh yeah very french well there's a there's a film later on this list that's even more french possibly but we'll get to that it's the last film i saw at the festival but um and then i saw a documentary uh, at the end of that night uh, called Free Solo. And now I don't really have a fear of heights, but you have to be dead to not be kind of uh, disturbed and uh, have a reaction to this film. It's about a man uh, named Alex uh, Honnold, and he likes to climb mountains and rock formation and cliffs and often without any ropes or harnesses. And the film is about him climbing this about 3,000-foot rock formation in Yosemite. And he accomplishes it. And the film is about his other achievements and him building up to doing this one giant one he's always thought of doing. And, you know, the filmmakers have this dilemma of capturing him on film on well, on, uh, with the cameras, but not getting in his way and distracting him. Oh and, yeah, 
Yeah, and <laughs> one of the co one of the co directors of the film is uh, Jimmy Chen, and he is one of the people that's climbing with ropes around him. But they had to figure out the balance of capturing uh, the I- I- images on camera, but not you know distracting him to the point where he falls to his death <laughs> and even though it's like a film you know it's a documentary and you know that he survives but it's one of those things like apollo 18 where even if you know the ending it's really intense and dramatic while you're watching it 13 and yeah i mean apollo it also 13. has <laughs> oh what did i say oh is 18. apollo 18 isn't that like a found footage horror film there's one called apollo 18 or it's it another is, number yeah. <laughs> yeah okay i've never actually seen apollo 13 i shouldn't use that as a reference oh but, really um, i know i know but um it's the, okay uh, the, the right stuff is much much better i haven't seen that either holy shit I mean, you've never seen the right yeah. stuff i if i want to randomly recommend um uh well first man's coming out we, we'll talk about that possibly but uh, a yes. good uh early space program film is one of robert altman's first films he did it even before mash it's called countdown um, that's a good film anyway, but randomly, anyway, free solo. Um, it's a documentary that reminds me in some ways of grizzly man, which I saw for the first time, uh, earlier this summer, uh, the Werner Herzog documentary, cause they're both about, I think crazy men who go out into nature and conquer their, uh, a fascination with, uh, the natural world. I mean, I, I don't know. It's both life-affirming and shows the great power of the human spirit but also shows you how crazy people are because he's climbing a giant rock formation and he could die at any second and he's just putting chalk on his hands and climbing up without any rope so i think he's kind of crazy but the film explores that in an interesting way so it's 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 a very well-made documentary and it's uh it's very human it's exciting it's intense there's funny moments uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth seeing in a theater uh, because, it, you know, the imagery on the big screen is really impressive. And it's it's one of those movies that would be so good in IMAX. I wish it was released in IMAX. Oh, that, that would does make sound it... like it would be good in IMAX. Yeah, I've always said that the films I most want to see in IMAX are things that would never be released in IMAX. That one, you know, I think would do well enough. But, you know, I would want to see like Terrence Malick films and nobody would like I want to see the three hour plus new cut of the Tree of Life in IMAX. But nobody would go see the that. The Red Line would be unbelievable in IMAX. I know. Well, I've said I think I said on one of the previous episodes that if Eraserhead or really any of Lynch's films were in IMAX, oh, it, I think you might like die watching it. The sound so would just that would haunt my dreams forever. <laughs> I know, but uh, so I uh, was. And so I'm going to go into the films I saw actually at the New York Film Festival. Yeah, and for those uh, of you who don't know, the New York Film Festival takes place almost entirely at Lincoln Center and the surrounding theaters around there. So it's a very different sort of feeling than what you would think of something like Sundance or uh, something like that where, like, everything is sort of focused on the film festival. It just, in my opinion, it gets sort of lost in the shuffle of being in Manhattan. So it's got sort of a weird feeling to it. I know. It's like you get off on the subway and you walk a few feet and you walk into the th- the main Alice Tully theater. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, the first film I saw was The Favorite. Uh, the new film by the Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, who Which directed. I want to see very, very, very badly. <laughs> I yeah, can't it, wait it, till it comes out. <laughs> yeah, it comes out in just a few weeks. It's um, by uh, the guy who directed Dogtooth, 
the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer and it stars two of uh, the lobsters uh, stars Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weitz and it, this film st- also stars Emma Stone and Nicholas Holt and it is in- impeccably made the production design the costumes the cinematography it's absolutely gorgeous to look at it reminds me somewhat of Barry Lyndon mm-hmm. but a really fucked up dark dark sexually charged uh absurdist version of barry linden in a way i mean it, it it doesn't have the same kind of narrative um but it has that just absolutely you know perfect look to it you know it's just incredibly well made but the, it's I, I don't want to give anything away about the plot but it's basically um i'll just say it's a love triangle between the three female characters and uh people vying for the power, uh, you know, the 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 uh, accompaniment of the uh, Mad Queen played brilliantly by Olivia Coleman. I mean, she's really something in the film. She manages to be both somewhat sympathetic, but also she's just nuts and she <laughs> just screams at people and she, you know, races ducks in her uh, in her palace and lobsters and she's has a bunch of bunnies around her. I, I it's a film that I know is really good, but I have to ponder the deeper themes and what it's trying to say exactly and it is very strange i mean it's if you liked his other films you'll probably like this one if you don't you probably won't like this one either it's kind of you know it's uh, it's one of it i think it's probably uh, most people think it's maybe his best film he's done and uh i'll have to decide after i've pondered it a while where it ranks uh in his filmography but it's absolutely worth seeing on the big screen when it comes out and uh uh, in regular theaters uh, l- later this month, I think. People are saying that it's his best movie. Yeah, it has a 92 on Metacritic right now. Oh wow! Because The Lobster was surprisingly like a pretty big movie when it came out, and yeah. uh, yeah. Killing of a Sacred Deer did, was not quite as it didn't quite make as big of a splash as The Lobster did. But I, it was I thought it was one of the most incredible movies I've seen in a movie theater. It was just like, ah, just like transfixed totally. And when I walked out of it, I like couldn't stop thinking about it. He's one of those directors that he's just in total command of what he's doing. You yeah. know, you might not like it. It's not for everyone, but he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I admire his, I mean, I know that uh, it, it amazes me that Dogtooth was nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film because it's just so dark and weird. And it's just usually Oscar nominees in that category are like Holocaust films and just super depressing, serious, serious movies. And this is just this perverse, dark comedy. And I remember David Lynch was a fan of it. He said in an interview that it was a great, great comedy, (laughs) which is, you know, what better praise could you have for a film? But, um, Yeah, so the favorite is absolutely uh, worth seeing. Um, I'll have, who it's who one do of you those think that, wins the movie out of the actresses? Oh, Olivia Coleman is. Oh the, yeah. The best. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's one of Emma Stone's best performances. She is really. She funny. seemed like she was like really like sort of like not. I wouldn't say reaching because that sounds like sort of negative. Like she's going outside of her range, but she was exploring aspects of herself that you really haven't seen her do in movies before. It's uh, not at all the same as uh, – I'm going to make a comparison, but I, it, it kind of reminds me of 
Jennifer Lawrence doing Mother last year. It's uh-huh. a young, really hot movie star that's won an Oscar recently, and she goes off with a, a really dark, brilliant director and makes a film that I would think that maybe some of her uh, you know, fans and some of her, even maybe some of her, uh, you know, business people say, you know, you shouldn't do this movie. It's too yeah. dark and weird and arty. But I, I, I think that, you know, Emma, St- I think Emma Stone's a great actress in some things. I really liked Easy A. Um, I mean, she, I, I think that, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I really don't like La La Land, but I think she's fine in it. Oh, I love La La Land. I'll defend that yeah. to the death. No, no, no. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, and um, uh, I actually do... it cost her a role in, uh, the Little Women remake that's coming out because she had to do promotion for uh, for this movie. Well, I think it's worth it, but um, <laughs> yeah, I well, I mean, I'm just glad that she was in this film because I think she's really well cast and uh, she's yeah, I think it's one of the best things she's done. Um, but the so that was the first day I saw the three outside of theaters. Uh, I mean, regular theaters, and then I saw the opening night uh, screening of the favorite, and Yorgos Lanthimos uh, introduced it. Um, the only uh, film I didn't get to see exactly how I wanted it was that I had to go to one of the smaller theaters to see the favorite and only he introduced it, but they had at the screening at the other bigger theater, Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone and a number of the behind the scenes people like the costume designer. But um, yeah, I, um, now I, I'm not someone that freaks out about seeing celebrities, but I was looking through a window at a group of people in the main theater and I saw Emma Stone, Jennifer Lawrence, and Taylor Swift. They were they were there, so I can't like truly say I saw them, but I was looking in a room where all of them were present. So <laughs> like in a little uh, fishbowl you're looking at. <laughs> I know, but uh, anyway, the but so the next day I saw another four films, and all these were at the festival. I started the day with the documentary "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," and it's about the making or maybe more apt to say the non-making of or the non-completion of Orson Welles' final film, The Other Side of the Wind, which was the second film I saw that day. So the story is Orson Welles made Citizen Kane. He directed it, starred in it, co-wrote it when he was 25 years old. It's considered by many people to be the best film ever made. And then he... Uh, you know, but it didn't do that well at the box office. And uh, his next film, The Magnificent Ambersons, was cut by the studio. And basically, the rest of his career, he really struggled to direct films mm-hmm. and have financial, uh, ha- get the financing together and have creative freedom. I mean, he's made probably as many films as films that he started shooting or shot almost all of them. Uh, all of it and never completed it. They go through the documentary, and he has a number of films that he shot but were never completed. But his final film called The Other Side of the Wind, he shot it in the early 70s over a number of years. And it stars John Huston and Peter Bogdanovich, who are both actors who were also famous directors. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first film uh, was a documentary about the making of this film. And the documentary was directed by Morgan Neville, who did the Oscar-winning documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. And also earlier this year, he did the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, this film is going to be on Netflix soon. And um, it's really entertaining and informative, but I think it's a little too fast and it cuts around a whole lot and there's it i don't know why it's so 
kind of it doesn't I just would, it wanted it to settle down a little bit and just yeah. tell the story but it was really kind of flashy and it's definitely entertaining and I, I learned a lot about uh, Wells and the making of the film but I think it's a little bit too I just wanted it to slow down a little bit yeah I feel um, like that's how kind of a lot of documentaries are now they just try to sort of overwhelm you with the style of it to like show you that there's a filmmaker behind this documentary and it's not just a bunch of found footage which I don't know. I'd like more people to be like Ken Burns and just sort of let the footage speak for itself. Well, we'll definitely get to one of those in a, uh, in a few films from now <laughs> yeah. that's like that. Um, but uh, the, then, then I saw uh, The Other Side of the Wind, which he shot almost all of. They you, There's no footage that's been filmed in the present, but there are a, a number of digital shots they had to tweak to put things together that they weren't able to completely capture when they were filming it in the early 70s. Uh, but the film has been it's, it was considered one of the great films never made. But finally, it has been constructed. And at the screening, they had uh, Peter Bogdanovich and they had uh, it was moderated by Martin Scorsese and they talked about the film and I saw an article where someone was writing that the film is going to be one that when it does come to Netflix, the company that actually finally got the money and the rights together to release the film, uh, it's going to be a film that there's going to be a huge percentage of the viewers that are not going to watch it straight through or not finish it at all because it's a tough sit. I think it's oh, a really? pretty – I think it's a pretty incredible film, uh, the, the, the editing and the themes in it. And w there's so much to chew on, but it's very 70s. It's, I wouldn't say it's trippy, but it, it's like uh, just it's, it's just throwing a lot of images at you. It's very uh, quick cuts. It's like complete opposite of Citizen Kane with the long takes yeah. and the, the cinematography. This is a bunch of handheld cameras. What's and, sort of like the plot of it? Like, what's it about? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. No, it's about a, it's basically about a filmmaker uh. Uh, played by John Huston. And the documentary points out that, Wells kept saying this is not autobiographical and then everyone says yeah bullshit you know it's totally yeah. bi autobiographical but it's about a filmmaker that's struggling to uh, make uh, a new film and he's doing this kind of Anatony Bergman-esque art film where it's basically a man following a woman around and there's very little dialogue and it's very arty and it's Wells kind of spoofing the art you know the art films coming uh -huh. out of Europe at the time and he said in the documentary that it was fun to direct a film that he wouldn't direct so it's Orson <laughs> yeah. Welles directing a film that he wouldn't ever like do like Leclerc or something like that <laughs> yeah exactly they, they reference that in the documentary and um, there's yeah it, it, the film is very intense and it's a sad film too because of the story of how it didn't get made forever mm -hmm. and or and wells died before it was uh you know before he was able to complete it but the film deals with that and it's about artists struggling to get their vision out and it's it, it is a tough sit but it's one you really need well when i say it's a tough sit I, i'm not saying it's a bad film it's just that yeah. it's demand it's a very demanding film yeah and it's one you need to turn all the lights off the phones off especially if you're watching it most people see it on netflix which is kind of a shame makes sort of a, a weird platform for a movie like that to come out on 
I know it's they actually showed it in 35 millimeter at the festival and it looked like absolutely gorgeous it was the first time the film had ever been screened in America I think I'm almost certain and uh so it was yeah it was a really incredible experience seeing Wells final film put together uh but it's definitely one you got to carve out just over two hours and be ready to sit uh and contemplate and confront a movie that's it's 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 worth it i think but it's it's not an easy sit yeah um and uh stay through the credits oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i i mean there's something at the very end that i wonder like well did will did wells put that in the script you wonder how much of it you know, if Wells was came back to life, he, he'd go, no, 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 this is totally not how I wanted this film to be. Uh-huh. But, uh, but anyway, the so I saw the documentary and then the film about uh, which the documentary was on, and the third film I saw, yeah, that day was a kind of a rough uh, four films. The documentary <laughs> was fun, but it was kind of you know flashy and uh-huh. you know it settled down. And then the other side of the wind is this arty, intense, you know film that's finally been constructed and a lot of handheld camera then the third film i saw was her smell uh-huh. which is a new film by alex ross perry have you seen any of his films such I as i don't the, think so i'm gonna look he that uh, he directed the color wheel also starred in that one uh listen up philip and queen of earth uh those last two i mentioned star elizabeth moss who mm-hmm. is in the new film and uh the film is uh, about two hours and 15 minutes long, Her Smell, and for about the first 75 or 80 minutes of the movie, uh, it's just punishing the audience. And it's purposely, Perry's purposely doing that. It's this punk rock singer going around the backstage of, uh, of a venue, and she's often on drugs, or she's yelling at people, she's being just a horrible, horrible person, and it's really difficult to sympathize with her at all, and it's really aggressive filmmaking, the camera is roaming around, and the soundtrack is thundering and sometimes it's hard to hear what the characters are even saying Uh but then the film just she reaches a point where she just hits rock bottom and the film stops and you cut to her a little while later and she's recovering she's uh gotten off drugs and the second part of the film tries to make you feel uh sympathy for her and it I, i think the film is flawed because i think that well, Moss does give an incredible performance. I think she really is one of the best actresses of her generation. I've, you know, I loved her on Mad Men and the Jane Campion miniseries, uh, Top of the Lake, and she's been in. I loved her in the other Perry films, but she really does kind of give a tour de force performance. But I don't think the film itself is as good as she is. I think oh, that yeah. the the concept of the film of having it be punishing for the audience for the first half and then making you realize that you should feel uh, sorry for this character and and realize where she's coming from. But I don't think the film totally earns it. It, You still think she's a horrible character. And it's it's an interesting character study, but I think she's better than the film itself. But it it has enough uh, good aspects about it that it's worth seeing. And it does have a really interesting cast besides her. Uh, There's Dan Stevens. There's Agnes Dan, who was in my favorite film of 2016, uh, Sunset Song. 
It also has uh, a bunch of young actresses like Cara Delevingne, Amber Heard, mm-hmm. and Gail Rankin, and also has Eric Stoltz and Virginia Madsen. Ashley uh, Benson. Play- yeah, she's – and um, Perry and Moss, Stoltz and Rankin were at the screening talking about the film. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, it's – it's it, if you're going to see it, you should definitely see it in the theater because it's kind of a full-on experience. Yeah. Uh, and after all of that, those three films – I ended the evening with a documentary about Steve Bannon. Uh, Errol Morris did a film titled American Dharma, where he sits and interviews Steve Bannon. And the conceit of the film is that it's like a warped, dark version of a guest programmer on Turner Classic Movies because he gets Bannon to talk about some of his favorite films and he picks uh, 12 O'Clock High, which is a Henry King film from 1949 starring Gregory Peck. And they reconstruct the hangar that there's uh, some famous scenes in the film. And that's where he interviews Steve Bannon in a replica oh, wow. of, uh, of a scene uh, of a set from that film. That's sort and... of how Bannon like, got famous initially, right? Was as a film producer? Oh right? yeah, he's he's a film director. Yeah, he's done documentaries himself, and he said that one of the reasons he was interested in going into filmmaking was Morris's own films, like The Fog of War. Oh, and wow. so he, they jokingly say that, like you know, Morris is to blame for Steve Bannon, maybe. <laughs> but um, he said that. Uh, well, he also said that uh, he's a fan of Michael Moore, even though he doesn't agree with you know, most of his politics that he's, oh, uh, yeah. admires Michael Moore, but, uh, I could see film... him admiring the persona of Michael Moore and just right. uh, sort of like the following he gets. I he's sort of, yeah. Like the liberal Steve Bannon, if you think about it a little bit. <laughs> well, I, what was interesting about the screening, there were people afterwards that were complaining, saying this film is, tr- uh, it's, it's, it's too pro Bannon, uh-huh. which is completely insane to me. I mean, the thing that Morris said was, you know, if you look at what he's saying in the film, it's nuts. The guy yeah. is nuts and his ideology is horrific. And I don't understand how anyone could watch the film and think in any way it's pro Bannon. I mean, there's is one part where Morris says there's good Bannon and there's bad Bannon. Bannon, meaning uh-huh. that there is some kernel of truth to some of the things he says. I mean, there's, you know, the saying a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it's like every single thing he thinks is deplorable. I mean, he has some, you know, uh, reasonable things, but mo- almost everything, almost everything is horrible. But it's really fascinating having Morris confront him. And it, what's scary is that Bannon is not this rambling idiot i mean he's very thoughtful and he explains his ideas it's just that the ideas are crazy Uh and uh, they're deplorable but he's but when he's explaining them he seems rational and intelligent explaining and that's what makes it so scary in Uh that he's he seems like he's you know has these strong convictions he Uh seems like he truly like a man of principle or something like that (laughs) I know. And it's crazy how he talks about some of these films and completely misses the point of them. And, okay. and, what other and, ones did he talk about besides 12 o'clock high? Well, he talks about bridge on the river Kwai uh-huh. and, uh, Orson Welles film, uh, chimes at midnight. Oh, that's and, a great movie. That's I know. a real throwback. <laughs> I know, but it's just weird that he like completely misreads them. And, oh, yeah. uh, 
and uh, but I, I I I don't I'm completely on the page that you don't just close your ears and go la 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 I don't want to hear anyone I don't agree with uh-huh. I mean I think Bannon's a you know horrible person but you know the point that Morris made in the inner uh, with the Q and A afterwards is that he thinks one reason that Hillary Clinton lost is that people didn't take Trump seriously. They just went, Oh, you should just ignore him. Don't engage him. Uh-huh. Don't listen to his crazy rhetoric, but then he won. And so I think that even if you can't stand what they're saying, you have to confront these people and debate them. Yeah. And, and have the them explain that... themselves to like really show how crazy they really are. <laughs> and they're, there's the idea that you know sunlight is the best disinfectant you know you Uh you expose their their horrible ideology but uh yeah it's um it's a very distressing sad angry i mean it it it, it, you walk out of the film just feeling terrible but it's a very well-made film um but it doesn't make you feel good about the state of our country. I oh, mean, yeah. it ends with everything being lit on fire <laughs> and it's like this apocalyptic, uh, they just burn the whole set down. Um, Holy shit. but, uh, yeah, but the, the next day on Sunday, my final day, I saw probably my favorite film of the festival. Uh, it's Frederick Wiseman's newest documentary, Monrovia, Indiana. Um, Wiseman, uh, and Morris are arguably the two greatest living documentary directors. And uh, Wiseman is 88 years old, and oh, he's wow. still going. He uh, same age as Clint Eastwood, and they're two filmmakers who really capture America um, and do really interesting and uh, thoughtful films about uh, you know different. I mean, what Wiseman does uh, film documentaries in other countries too, but. Hmm. Uh, Monrovia, Indiana is really fascinating because he went to this small farming uh, town in in Indiana and he just captured life there with his films. There's no narration. There's no title cards, direct interviews or music, except if it's playing where he's filming. He doesn't put any music or sound effects on. Oh, wow. And he just... And he's been doing it for over 50 years. His first film, uh, Titicock Follies, came out in 1967 and like Clint Eastwood, he's done about a film every year, year and a half. Uh, this is like his 45th film or so. It's mid-40s or something. And uh, it's a, it's an incredible film. It's So it's just sort of like of, fly on the wall on the people of the community, basically? Well, he, I, I've heard him say before, and I actually asked him a question in the Q&A. I said that I know you don't like the term fly on the wall because he said in an interview oh, once, really? like, I hope. He said, I hope I have a little more intelligence than a fly. Uh, but uh, the idea is that he goes to places. I mean, he do, he's done everything from a mental institution mm-hmm. to a boxing gym in Texas to his previous one was about the New York Public Library. But he goes to these places and films many, many hours of footage. And he takes what he has and he tries to not have any uh, opinion about it or any preconceptions and he goes there in films and then afterwards he edits some of the scenes together and he you know hones it down into uh, a film and he messes with the edit and puts scenes together and see how it changes and he talks about how there's the literal and then there's the 
uh, on another level, there's kind of the symbolic. So he'll, you know, you might literally be watching someone just do a standard uh, procedure, like working on a car, or there's a scene where you have a vet cut off a dog's tail, which is kind of pretty graphic in the film. Oh, wow. But the idea is that the documentary lives in between what's literally happening, but what the editing the footage together means. Uh-huh. And so even those films look like you're just watching stuff happen. They're really brilliant because the way he constructs it, it's, it, he has things to say. He doesn't tell you what he's thinking. It's not like a Michael Moore. It's not like a polemic film, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it, it has a lot of things. And it's funny because, uh, it's a film about red state America, but nobody ever mentions Trump or there's nothing really overtly political mentioned in the film, uh-huh. but it's very interesting how there's that is, you can't ignore that even though it's never really brought up specifically in the film. And I mean, I love Frederick Wiseman's films. I've seen about a dozen of them and this is actually one of his shorter ones in recent years. This one's only two hours and 23 minutes in his <laughs> previous his previous four have all been three hours or longer. Oh man! Um, but, uh, I, I did see his longest one ever, uh, Near Death, which came out in 1989. I saw that at Film Forum in New York City last uh, last year. It's a six-hour black and white documentary about patients, doctors, and family members in a Boston ICU. Oh wow! And uh, that was. You want to talk about tough sit. That's a tough sit. <laughs> yeah. Especially when but, it's like uh, a half of your day. <laughs> I know. It's it's they had it a little over three hours and they had a ten minute intermission and then you go back and you have almost another whole three hours. Oh my god. Um, but it it really is a powerful film, but uh, I if you've never seen any of Wiseman's films, I highly recommend. Um, there's a bunch and yeah. uh, if any of you have access to Canopy, the library streaming service um all of his films are on there if you have access to a good uh library he put his whole catalog on there recently that's basically the only way you can get them besides ordering them straight from his website because oh, wow. uh, he owns his own films but frederick Wiseman's uh one of our great living directors and i hope he lives to be you know i hope he never dies because i want him <laughs> to keep making movies forever um have you seen any of Weissman's films? Ever? I've actually never seen any of them. Oh, you need to. I know you said you're not the biggest fan of documentaries, but... No, but uh, he sounds he... like he makes them in a sort of interesting way. My big problem with documentaries is that they present themselves as being fact, when at the end of the day there's always someone mediating like what you see and the message that's being put across by it. So, I don't know. I think the whole notion of documentaries is a bit flawed, because I think they're just as fictional as pretty much anything else that gets made in Hollywood. But... He sounds like he well, does it in a sort of interesting way, and I understand he doesn't like the word "fly on the wall," but I don't know. It seems like a good way well, to describe what he does. Well, I've always said that with a film that's based on fact, like a historical drama mm-hmm. or a biopic, or even a documentary, I always like to say, "Never let the truth get in the way of a good film." Mm-hmm. I strongly believe that. I mean, I understand if you're a real person and someone made a documentary about you Uh and they completely changed it. You could be angry, but in general, I'm okay with 
people changing facts and um you know especially when it's a drama when you're doing a recreation a biopic or something it Mm -hmm. like it doesn't bother me if like oh that took place two years earlier how could like that model of handgun had not been invented yet (laughs) i know some people are too picky but um uh, probably the most star-studded screening I went to uh, was the evening screening of Wildlife, mm-hmm. which is uh, the directorial debut of actor Paul Dano, mm-hmm. uh, who most of you probably know from Little Miss Sunshine or mm-hmm. There Will Be Blood. Love um, and Mercy. I also really, yeah, I was just about to say that I think he should have won Best Actor that year. He's um, very good a... in that movie. I hadn't seen it till this year, but I really buy him yeah. as Brian Wilson, and I love the Beach Boys. I know it's oh yeah it, it, that's that's a great biopic. It really, that's really is. good. I don't like the yeah. John Cus. This is definitely a tangent, but I don't like the John Cusack scenes as much. I don't know. I just don't buy him as much as Brian Wilson, because Paul Dano is just like uh, he immerses himself in it. He's like totally Brian Wilson for the parts he's in. Well, if he's one of those actors, Dano, if you look at his IMDb page in recent years, he's really only doing interesting stuff, uh-huh. working with interesting directors. Um, he's selective. He doesn't do, you know, five films every year. He was in 12 Years a Slave, and mm-hmm. he's, um, uh, you know, and then now he's directed his first uh, film. Uh, it's written uh, with uh, by him and his longtime girlfriend, Zoe Kazan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's based on a novel by Richard Ford, mm-hmm. and the cast uh, is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Carey Mulligan, Bill Camp, and a young Australian actor named Ed Oxbold. And... Uh, it's really well directed and it's it's I didn't know anything about it going into it so I don't want to give too much away but it's a period piece and it has to do with the relationship uh, between this married couple and how the times alter uh, the kind of dynamics of men and women and mm-hmm. the family unit and it's an uncomfortable film at times it's uh, incredibly well acted the main reason to see it is the acting um, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, who's my boyfriend. I have the biggest crush on him. But we don't need to go into stuff like that. But uh, and I do think Carrie Mulligan is truly kind of transcendent when she's in movies often. Yeah. I mean, and she doesn't I mean, appear in that many movies. So it's uh, every role she's in, she seems like she really gives a lot to it. Am I completely off in saying that she might be kind of this generation's Audrey Hepburn? She has just kind of grace to her in this. Just she appears in different sorts of movies than Audrey Hepburn did. Yeah, Yeah, I can't. I I I have a hard time seeing Audrey Hepburn in Shane. Oh yeah, Drive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, picture. I mean, it wasn't her character, but picture like the scene with Christina Hendricks in Drive. I mean, picture seeing Audrey Hepburn just having her head blown off. In oh adult. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, or I mean, in an elevator when somebody's face gets stomped in. <laughs> I know. I mean, like I would, I would love someone to make. I've always had this fantasy of someone making a film where they have. Like, I don't want them to do this, like, put digitally put people in. But imagine, like, Tarantino, like, casting, like, you know, older, like, putting Humphrey Bogart in a movie and having him <laughs> just, like, stab a guy to death, you know, just be really graphic and violent. I don't know. I'm messed up. Like I lo- Spencer anyway. Tracy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, or like, have James Cagney be in a Tarantino film. Like, that would be amazing. He, he would work. He would really work. You could just put him in Reservoir Dogs and he would fit right in. 
I know. But uh, wildlife is uh, the main reason to see it is the acting. It's 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 beautifully shot, and uh, there's a lot of. It, it's one of those period films that really gets it right. Mm. I mean, there's some films I like to say that they're embalmed in nostalgia. Some films they're so. There's like I always like the Clint Eastwood film Jersey Boys was just like it was so like there's something about it that just made it like it's old fashioned. It was just so it you, you looked like you're walking into a, you know, planet Hollywood. Like it just yeah. was so it was it, sort like, of like it, fake 60s. It was so like nostalgic right. for it. Yeah, I mean, it's like in a certain degree, it's like impeccably done with the costumes and production design. But it's just it, there's something, some quality about it. But wildlife is one that does it very well. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so that should become that'll probably be a big Oscar contender. Yeah, do you um, think both Gyllenhaal and uh, Carrie Mulligan get nominated for that? I think Carrie Mulligan uh, will probably get nominated. Jake Gyllenhaal is really a supporting actor in the film. Oh, really? Um, yeah, he. Well, I don't want to say why, but he. I mean, he he isn't in. I mean, there's a good like hour of the film. He's not in it at all. Oh wow. Yeah, um, but the final film I saw uh, that evening was a French film called Sorry Angel. And forgive me if I am mispronouncing uh, these people's names, but the director's <laughs> name Christopher Honoré. Honoré. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen any of his films, but he did a film in 2011, a musical called Beloved. It starred Catherine Deneuve and her daughter, uh, Sheria Mastriani. Did you know that she, uh, she had a daughter with uh, Marcello Mastriani? Mastriani yeah. 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 You know that? Yeah. Yeah. I learned um, that just this year. I know. That is a um, real foreign movie power couple. Oh <laughs> Catherine gosh. Deneuve yeah. and Marcello Mastriani. <laughs> Um, and randomly, that film Beloved has Milos Forman in it, the late oh, wow. director who died. Anyway, but um, I, this Amadeus is the first fan. film I've seen. Huh, yeah, well, this is the first film I've seen by this director, Honoré, or how you say it, Henri. Yeah, Honoré. Yeah, how you say it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it stars an actor named Vincent Lacoste, or how you say his name. He's um, if I'm sure they're not listening, but if uh, I'm mispronouncing your name and you ever hear this, I'm sorry. Uh, but he's. Uh, mostly known for comedies in France. And uh, this film has some humor in it, but it's really kind of an epic gay love story about uh, that cuts back and forth uh, through different time periods. Oh, wow. And it's um, it's extremely gay in French, uh, <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, it's very well acted and it's moving and uh, it deals with the AIDS and it deals with uh, you know, gay men and the relationships they have with other gay men mm-hmm. when, you know, your friends or your, or your lovers and the age difference. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a powerful film. I, I don't know that it necessarily needed to be as long as it is. It's about two hours and nine, uh, 15 minutes or so, mm-hmm. but, um, Maybe it was just because it was the last film of my 11 and yeah. I was like reading subtitles and, um, yeah. but, but it, but no, but it, it's, it's, it's a powerful, uh, moving film and, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I reckon, and I, it makes me want to go back and watch the director's other films. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he talked about it as being kind of a part of a trilogy where he wrote a novel, he did the film and then he's done a play and they're not, they're like three separate. It's like a, uh, three segments of this story. That's kinda, yeah. That's the word. <laughs> but, um, so I would say of the 11 films I've seen, uh, definitely my favorite is Monrovia, Indiana. Oh, but really? So, um, 
Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, Fre- Wiseman's the best. I mean, I, you know, watching a dog get its tail cut off in surgery, and it's like <laughs> I'm in heaven. Um, and uh, it, but then right up there, uh, the other ones I really liked the most were the favorite and the old man with the gun. Mm-hmm. So none you so, really um, didn't like. I guess the one about the uh, with Elizabeth Moss would be closest to that. That's that's that is a flawed film with a terrific performance and a number of things to recommend about it, but I don't think it completely works. And uh-huh. I do think that um, the uh, documentary uh, "The Love Me When I'm Dead" is um, it's it's really entertaining and it's well made, but I just wish that it would uh, it, it would have slowed down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just for reference, uh, the old man in the gun, Colette and Free Solo are playing in select theaters across the country now mm-hmm. um the favorite i think is isn't that coming out this month in october i'm pretty sure it's coming out in october I'll, everything's yeah. coming out in october it seems like yeah um they'll love me when i'm dead and the other side of the wind will both be on netflix soon and um her smell american dharma and sorry angel do not have uh, release dates but i'm going to assume they're probably going to come out sometime next year theatrically yeah. in the us um and then wildlife uh is uh going to be oscar contender it's going to come out uh sometime by the end of the year mm-hmm. so those are uh the films i saw in new york city and uh i had a really good time uh, does carter have any questions or comments about me uh you know i've been rambling a little bit because it, you know it's all the films i saw mm-hmm. but uh, do you have anything else to add uh not too much just sort of i don't know very jealous you got to go back to <laughs> spend some time in manhattan i haven't done that in some time and uh yeah well i the new york I, film I festival some... is pretty cool even though it i don't know it doesn't film like a festival in the same way i've never been to sundance but i feel like that is like how a film festival should be and the new york film festival just like everything being in manhattan is just so overwhelmed by manhattan itself that it like it it becomes sort of not special but i don't know it's it's probably judging it a little harshly it's like how my mom felt about nyu it's just just, she's like it's just like another building it's another building and uh you know the new york film festival is just like oh it's just this theater that's right outside on the yeah, street and there are but... famous people everywhere <laughs> it's just more I know. famous well, people <laughs> i mean it doesn't really matter but I, I could just name a few people i saw i saw ben stiller in the audience Ooh. um i saw noah bombach at the screening of was her he smell. with ben stiller also... <laughs> well no the uh, ben stiller was at the screening of wildlife because i didn't oh, okay. realize this i looked up on imdb he's directed all the episodes of an upcoming TV series that stars Paul Dano. Oh wow! Yeah, so uh, that should be interesting. That should but be um, they're a drama about prisoners in jail. Oh wow! Um, anyway, um, the uh, I also saw um, Zasha Mamet on the street, uh, and I saw. I'm pretty sure I. I've never seen Orange Is the New Black, but I'm pretty sure I saw Uza. Abduba, or how do you say her name? I, She's I know, the one I that got the, the Emmy, right? Yeah, I think so. She plays Crazy Eyes, I think. I've okay, never yeah, seen the show. Okay, so. yeah, that's it, yeah. I've never yeah, seen it yeah, either. Uh, My roommate's girlfriend yeah, uh, was really into it, but I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah, um, there was a character actress named uh, Celia Weston. Uh-huh. Um, Do you ever see the film Observe and Report with Seth Rogen? Oh, Rogan? yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, she plays his mother in that. She's really funny in that movie yeah um but uh she's actually from spartanburg south carolina i looked up oh, wow. uh, which hometown is hometown of zion teaching. williamson 
Really? Well, yeah. You know the guy who plays uh, Black Panther is from South Carolina. Oh, really? Chadwick Boseman? I think, I think he is. Yeah, I've got a friend I... who did some uh, some clerking at a law firm in Spartanburg while he went to uh, USC. Yeah. That's is there anyone else? the point, well, though. <laughs> well, I was looking up Chadwick Boseman was born in Anderson, South Carolina, which is very close to here. Okay. To Greenville. Anyway, so those are the films I saw at the New York Film Festival, and uh, next week we'll be talking about maybe Carter. You'll actually go see some movies. Oh I, yeah, I'm about... I'm gonna see A Star Is Born. I am I'm ready for that. I've been ready for that for a very long time. <laughs> well, we uh we're not have now you're like me. You haven't seen any of the other versions. I have seen uh the version with, with James Mason and Judy Garland, and I love that. Yeah, movie. the George Cooper. Well, um. Just for people, if any of you have film struck, the first three versions of the film are on there. What Price Hollywood, A Star is Born, the one from the 30s, and then A Star is Born from the 50s, directed by George Cooker with Judy Garland and James Mason. And then the fourth one uh, is um, Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson from the 70s. Yeah. So this is the fifth version of the film coming out so maybe uh we'll watch all the other film versions and talk about it on an episode or at least see the new one yes next yes yeah. regardless of how many of the original or four remakes that we end up seeing next week will for sure be very star is born centric and i'm very excited about that i'm ready for these sort of oscar bait movies to start coming out like first man comes out next week i'm just ready for all of yeah. this stuff Right. There are so many movies I could have seen in theaters. I wanted to see Hold the Dark, but that's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, it's by the director who did Blue Ruin and Green Room. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, but yeah, I could I, I could only, and I didn't wanted to see the Sisters Brothers. That's mm -hmm. out in theaters. But anyway, we'll we'll catch up with the movies before we die. <laughs> yep. And uh, some, some thank you them. for listening to Jonathan's rambling about the New York Film Festival. Hopefully you join us next week for some lively discussion of A Star is Born. Welcome to New York. It's been waiting for you. Welcome to New York.